Hi, I'm Mackenzie Fagan, and this is 112BK coming to you from downtown Brooklyn. On the show today, cycling fatalities have spiked. Why now and what next? Think of it like a factory floor. If you had someone operating a forklift who was routinely running over factory workers, I don't think that that person could hold on to his job if he said, uh, you know, I just can't see all these people. I've lived in New York for 16 years now, and I've witnessed the evolution of cycling in my own personal social circle. When I moved here, my only friends who had bikes were living in lofts in Williamsburg or Bushwick. They rode fixies, and they had those comically heavy chains across their torsos like the ghost of Jacob Marley. They were skilled at weaving in and out of traffic, and still they got doored. But gradually, as the city added more bike lanes, more and more of my less hardcore friends got bicycles. Cruisers, street bikes with baskets, even some of those mortifying folding bicycles. By the time city bikes descended on New York in 2013, biking in the city seemed safe enough for parents visiting from out of town. But suddenly biking feels scary again. Since the beginning of the year, there have been 15 cyclists killed by vehicles. Compare that to 10 deaths in all of 2018, and 10 of those fatalities have occurred right here in Brooklyn. Here to talk about the spike in fatal accidents and what needs to be done to reverse this terrible trend is editor-in-chief of Streets blog, Gersh Kuntzman. Welcome back to Brick. Thank you. And cycling advocate, Doug Gordon. Thank you so much for joining us today. Good to be here. Wish you were here uh, uh, for a happier reason. People always wish I was here. So <laughs> let's start with that. But right. yes, I agree. It's been a terrible year for everybody. So recently we had a week in which three cyclists were killed in traffic crashes. Um, already this year, we're 50% higher in terms of fatalities than we were last year. Was last year an abnormally low year in terms of fatalities? Well, actually, if you look at the statistics, it suggests that last year was an abnormally low year. The year before, I think there were 24 cyclists killed. But nonetheless, Vision Zero, which is the mayor's principal street safety initiative, su suggests that we're supposed to get down to zero for all road deaths, and we're still around 200 as we were last year. So it's not going in the right direction as fast as the mayor would like it to. Doug, tell me about Vision Zero. What is it exactly? Right. So <laughs> that's yeah. a very good question. It's a, that's an excellent <laughs> question to start with because that definition really changes depending on who you ask in New York. And I would, I would argue that the mayor actually gets it wrong. So Vision Zero is basically a top-down systems-based approach to traffic safety. Now, historically, we've said, you know, look both ways before you cross the street, and everybody has to do their part. But what Vision Zero says is that it's actually the system designers, the traffic engineers, and the planners who have to design a system in which the cost of human error, because we all make mistakes, we all get distracted, we all are human, uh, shouldn't be death. So we can uh, design our way to safer streets. We can't scold our way or enforce our way. Now, enforcement has a part of Vision Zero, but usually it's automated in the form of red light cameras, speed cameras, things like that. Um, but right, it's a, it's a top-down vision zero. This, the, the planners are responsible for making sure that street is safe for in everybody. In principle, this sounds great. Yes. And in practice, how's it going? You can't really design your way out of fatalities fully because there's so many miles of roadway and so many cars. And right. part of the, one of the biggest pillars of vision zero that I think is not working or not being propped up enough by the mayor is car reduction strategies, making areas of the city, for example, or neighborhoods, parts of a neighborhood, Dumbo, for example, car-free. Just no, don't allow cars down there. A neighborhood like Dumbo's got thousands, tens of thousands of tourists just walking around taking pictures of the skyline from the waterfront. 
they're it, it, conflicting with cars all day long. There are crashes. There are injuries. Tourists literally sitting down in the middle of the street in to order take to that get iconic exactly. photo. Right. right. I mean, also, you know, think about it in terms of behavior. I could wag my finger at UPS drivers all day long and say, please don't park in bike bike lanes. But if they're trying to make a delivery on a street and there are no loading zones and there's and the entire street is lined with personal parking, what are they going to do? They're going to park in the bicycle lane. So that suggests again that there has to be, like Gersh was saying, a car reduction strategy. You need to take three parking spots off of that street and put in a loading zone that can be used by UPS, FedEx, a plumber, any contractor who's coming to the street. You see what he did there, though? He just threw a bomb at a lot of community boards around the city who unfortunately object whenever one or two, or in the case of Central Park West, 400 spaces that they think are reserved for on-street car storage. It's actually part of the public right-of-way, the roadway, uh, are taken away from them to make for a bike lane. As you know, uh, loading zones are a huge problem in parts of the city because of the explosion in online ordering and and food delivery, which requires, in the case of a UPS driver, to sometimes park in the roadway. That roadway is sometimes marked as a bike lane. They're legally allowed under current rules to make what they call expeditious, I'm using the quote marks not ironically, expeditious deliveries, and they can park wherever they want and not get a ticket. That's a function of a bad law that's badly enforced because some of these trucks sit in the bike lane making many deliveries, which are obviously not expeditious. So we have a very complicated problem. We have a limited amount of public roadway that's being used in ways that a lot of planners didn't anticipate. Right. Talk to me about this terrible week that just occurred. So we had three cyclist deaths. Uh, where were they and what were the circumstances around them? You, you want to go? You want to do the first one? So there was Robin Heitman, uh, a messenger. Robin was killed at 6th Avenue, 23rd, 24th Street. It's unclear whether Robin was merging into a bike lane or crossing the street and a truck driver, a box truck driver, hit her. Um, There was Deborah Freelander who was killed. Um, There's video. It's pretty horrible. She was in a place with basically no bike lanes and coming off of the sidewalk, it seemed, and a large cement truck driver, you know, was coming through the intersection and claims he couldn't have seen her and hit her. There was also, Gershwin, the last one was... There was uh, uh, a man named Eskew, uh, Ernest Eskew, right. also in uh, in Brooklyn, in Brownsville, and he was killed. Uh, he was biking across uh, Sutter Avenue, and we, we actually don't know a lot of the circumstances there. It's unclear if the driver had the green light. In the case of uh, Deborah Freelander, it does look like the truck driver had the green light, but he also was going at an extreme rate of speed, and it's also a cement truck, which is not legal on uh, Borum Street at that location, unless he's making a delivery, and it's unclear that he was. So there's a lot of issues related to these things. For example, the, the enforcement of truck uh, truck routes. He was not on a truck route. Uh, other issues related to uh, Robin Heitman is uh, the truck driver initially left the scene of the crash claiming he didn't know that he had hit someone. Now, this is a common uh, excuse that drivers, especially truck drivers, give. I didn't know I hit someone, which to me suggests you were either operating at a high rate of speed or you were operating without exercising what they call due care. You didn't know you hit someone. Suggests to me that you didn't know what you were doing. Now, he did eventually circle back when he was told that he had hit someone. But nonetheless, it's clear evidence that something happened that should not have happened. When a truck is on a residential street that is not permitted to be on and it hits someone, what happens? Is the driver held responsible? Are there consequences for the trucking company? What will happen in the case of Deborah Freelander? Well, that's a very good question. The Collision Investigation Squad, which is a small unit within the NYPD, investigates uh, a lot of the fatalities and a lot of the serious injuries on the streets of New York. The squad is 
woefully understaffed. The city council wants to actually beef up the staff, and the NYPD has rejected the money to do so. The problem with investigations is <laughs> there's a car culture in the NYPD that suggests, well, it was just a tragic accident. Now, it's not a tragic accident of any kind. First of all, we use the term crash because accident suggests that there's no, there's no uh, uh, ability to change these things. They just happen. They don't actually happen. This truck was where he should not have been. He was not on a marked truck route, and he was going at a rapid rate of speed through the green light. Now, will the NYPD's investigation find that? I don't know because they won't, in they won't know, for example, was he listening to loud music in the van? Did he have the proper documentation to allow him to be on that route? Was he traveling at a high rate of speed? Will they pursue this? I don't know. We look sometimes six months, a year later, and there's still no action on a lot of these crashes. In fact, in hit-and-run cases, we've done statistical analysis on this to show that even in hit-and-run cases, a very small fraction of drivers who leave the scene of crashes are ever charged with hit-and-run, ever. It's down at like 10 11%, and that's a tiny fraction, meaning you basically could flee the scene of a crash and not be charged. There was video footage from a vigil being held for Deborah, and some of the cement trucks, the same type of cement truck that hit her, were passing down the street. It appears that they're dispatched from a street quite close to where the accident occurred. Mm -hmm. And you hear the driver of one of the cement trucks engaging with the people at the vigil saying, we can't see you. How are we supposed to see you? This seems to be a massive problem. Um, Doug, what what can be done if truck drivers are admitting we can't see cyclists? Right. And like Gersh was saying, too, in the case of Robin Heitman, the driver also said, I couldn't see the cyclists. That suggests to me, again, that there needs to be more enforcement. And think of it like a factory floor. If you had someone operating a forklift who was routinely running over factory workers, I don't think that that person could hold on to his job if he said, uh, you know, I just can't see all these people. What might happen is that the factory foreman would say, you know what, we, we need to redesign the forklift, or we need to separate the forklift from where our factory workers are, you know, building widgets. And I think that what we need to see here is that when we hear, let, let's take the truck drivers at their word, that they really can't see pedestrians and cyclists as they're operating these very large trucks around the city. Well, that suggests that they should be heavily regulated and kept as far away from regular people crossing the street, riding their bicycles, even other drivers as possible, because that's the only thing that's going to guarantee anyone's safety. Right, because it seems that it it suggests that there isn't recklessness or negligence. It seems like there's a design flaw where well, people are in giant trucks and can't see. There's plenty of negligence on the part of truck drivers. I wouldn't want to let anyone off the hook. You do see people just blowing through red lights because they know they can. Like if they get a ticket once every hundred times, that's probably worth it for them to do it. Um, so, you know, enforcement has its place. But what I always say is that, you know, the point at which someone I care about uh, is killed and their driver is arrested for that person's death, that's too late for me and for the person I care about. I, I don't want the driver who runs over my kids to be prosecuted. I want my kids to not be run over. So it, that's what Vision Zero really should be about. It should be about looking at all these problem spots, design, even the design of cars themselves, the amount of cars that are flooding our streets and doing something about that, putting the responsibility not on those drivers who were confronted by advocates at that vigil, but putting the onus on the mayor, on the Department of Transportation, on the police. Gersh? Yeah, I would, I would jump in there because I would be remiss if I didn't point out that there's this weird equivalence that the NYPD seems to have with cyclist enforcement versus car or truck enforcement. For example, the amount of damage that a speeding or a, a, a bike that goes through a red light can do on a pedestrian is, is far, far less 
than what a car, even going at the regular speed limit, let alone speeding, can do to a pedestrian. As you know, one pedestrian has been killed in the last three years by a cyclist, whereas hundreds of pedestrians and all of the cyclists and pedestrians have been killed by car drivers and truck drivers. And today at a press conference, the, the uh, police commissioner, O'Neill, had suggested that there's some sort of equivalence between, between that. The cyclists must obey the rules of the road, he says. Well, drivers also need to obey the rules of the road, but the difference in the damage they can do is something that the NYPD doesn't seem to acknowledge. They mm -hmm. seem to treat all road infractions the same. And that's something very frustrating, especially painful to cyclists at this time when they're being killed in such high numbers. I feel like this issue of personal responsibility comes up a lot when you talk about fatalities in cycling. Um, you know, with Deborah Freelander, people are saying, oh, she was coming off of a sidewalk. Do you feel like this is what we should be focusing on or are there bigger fish to fry? Personal responsibility has a role to play on the individual level. I guess I would liken it also, I'm full of analogies today, to cigarette smoking, right? We have virtually no one smoking compared to 10, 20 years ago. And it wasn't, I mean, look, there were public service campaigns and all that, and that played its part. But ultimately, what got the rate of smoking down was high taxes on cigarettes and banning smoking in public places and in bars and restaurants. So it was really kind of law and almost, you could argue, infrastructure. Where can you actually do this illegal thing or harmful thing? Um, and I would say that that's what has to happen with driving. We, we can't wag our fingers and say, everybody behave. It's, it's hurting cats in a city like New York. Um, we need to put the focus on the people who design the system. So you're uh, calling for top-down systemic change. Absolutely. Look, I would tell my friends, like I always say, follow the law. Don't run red lights. Really be careful. Hey, I know that intersection. It's really bad. You want to be extra careful when you step off the curb there. But I think the bigger solution is going to be, who's the city council person there? Why aren't they advocating for that intersection to be changed? Where's the budget for pouring concrete to make drivers slow down a little bit? That's what we should be focused on. You know, I would only add one thing to that. I, I, I'm a big believer in, in one form of personal responsibility, which is I cycle every day. 15, 20 miles, and I don't cycle recklessly. Now, recklessly is, right. a, is, a, is, a, is, is a foolish term to use, and that's the one the NYPD uses a lot, because the roads are designed for cars, so a lot of cyclists will do things to make themselves feel safer. For example, get a jump on a red light so they're not being pursued by a 3,000-pound vehicle, or uh, make, a, make a right turn on a red light to avoid side traffic or to avoid pedestrians that are going to show up and, and block the road. But it, there's many reasons why a cyclist would do that. The, the, the key for me is when enforcement is discussed, it needs to be discussed in a commensurate way. And I'm on radio shows all the time, talk radio, AM talk radio. It's all <laughs> car drivers calling saying, you cyclists are the, the problem. You cyclists are the problem. You're, you're hitting pedestrians. You're killing people. First of all, it's not true. And second of all, car, car drivers and truck drivers we need to make sure that they are properly uh, constrained in their behavior. They are the ones committing all the danger. Yeah, I think so. Gersh and I are really in agreement on that. Like when you ride a bicycle in New York City and you're on 45th Street and 8th Avenue, don't blow through a red light that's largely going to be like, you know, 100 people crossing that crosswalk. But if it's late at night and you're on Dean Street here in Brooklyn, not far from where we are, and there's nobody around, and you'd rather get a kind of jump start on the five cars behind you... Who cares? But and as you said, we shouldn't have to rely on the consideration of fellow humans in order to make sure that we stay alive when we're on bicycles. And that's what Vision Zero says, is right. that we're all human and we make mistakes. Right. And if we rely on that, that's a recipe for disaster. So again, great in theory. And de Blasio, as he's been stumping, has really said that Vision Zero is a success. Um, 
Do you agree with that? And do you think that he's doing enough to make sure that cyclists are protected? Well, he's clearly not doing enough. And mm-hmm. that's the numbers show that. Is it a success? Clearly, there are parts of it that are a success. Numbers of fatalities are down during his administration. But at the same time, he's not tripling down on some of the things he's done. Number of protected bike lanes, for example, were down last year versus the year before. Uh, that, so that we need, you know, there's a city council bill that would build a hundred miles of protected bike lane a year. Last year, the city did about 18 to 20. Uh, that would be a revolutionary change. There's yeah. another city council bill that's moving forward that would call for 50 miles of protected bike lane a year. That's a big deal. Uh, speed cameras are going to help. We've got 750 schools that will be protected by speed cameras. Why they only need to be at school zones, I have no idea. They're a very effective tool. People who get speeding tickets from speed cameras. The vast majority of them do not get a second ticket, which suggests that it works. We could have those cameras all over the place were it not for the PBA, which is the police union, opposing it and other factors up in Albany. But nonetheless, that's going to help. And uh, and more design, better design, which he could do more of if he wasn't out in Iowa or South Carolina. Gershie mentioned that he's inherited and every other mayor has inherited a city with streets that have been built for cars. Is there actually anything that can be done Um, given this fact that will be enough? Or do we need to have a more imaginative rethinking of what a city can look like? Both both (laughs) of those things, yeah. I mean, look, the the mayor and the Department of Transportation are not doing everything in their power. They regulate the curb, right? So every street is lined with parking. It doesn't actually have to be that way. And there's no law that says that they just can't come around and take one or two parking spots per block and daylight an intersection to make it more visible between drivers and pedestrians. What do you mean by daylight? So let's say you go up to a crosswalk and you look to your right to see if any cars are coming and there's a big SUV park there and you can't see. And from the other perspective, the driver can't see you. So you remove that parking spot and maybe you just put down striping to start, but maybe you put down a planter or bike parking or you build it out in concrete into a wider sidewalk and now suddenly nobody can park there. The view can't be obstructed. You might even build it in a way that slows the drivers down as they make a turn. Um, And so there's nothing stopping the Department of Transportation from doing that. They're afraid of touching parking because community boards uh, really freak out about that anytime you do that. Um, we were talking about loading zones. They could be doing more to regulate uh, the curb in that way, adding loading zones. Look, I think, like Gersh was saying, they could be making more streets car-free. We have huge pedestrian crushes in Midtown where sidewalks are just packed and people are spilling over into the street. They're starting to do some stuff to solve this problem, but it's not rolling out fast enough. Lower Manhattan is just a parking lot, and it shouldn't be that way. Um, that's not a neighborhood that was designed for cars. You know, that was designed for the Dutch when they came here in the 1600s. So Dutch people love bikes. Exactly. Yeah. New Amsterdam and all Wooden that. Shoes. So, And it wouldn't take a major reimagining of the city. For example, we're talking about, this is the 112BK. Let's talk about Bay Ridge for a second. The city went down there with a plan for a bike network. Uh, Now, they could have went down there with a plan for a protected bike network, but it's a neighborhood where drivers like to double park. There's a lot of shopping strips, 3rd Avenue, 5th Avenue, a lot of double parking in Bay Ridge. So instead, the city went in with a proposal for painted bike lanes, which still was rejected by the local community board, even though not a single parking space would have been removed. (laughs) They just don't like the idea of bikes getting in their way. But that's the imagining we need to do. On-street car storage was not even legal in New York City until after the 1950s. You weren't allowed to put your car on the street overnight. Now it's seen as a birthright of every New York City driver. And as you know, in Manhattan and parts of Brooklyn, uh, certainly in this part of Brooklyn where we're filming, 
households, uh, it's only about 20%, 25% of households own cars. So why are we I'm making... I'm amazed pu- it's that high, Well, in some parts of Brooklyn, it's even lower. Brooklyn Heights, for mm-hmm. example, even lower. But why are we designing public policy and, and our roadway around this very entitled small minority of people who, if you were anywhere around on the, on, the, on the July 4th weekend, you saw most of them took their cars on vacation with them. So clearly this is an entitled class of people who make the most noise, even more noise than the all-powerful bike lobby. Yeah, I just posted something. There was a stat from the Department of Transportation that looked at four neighborhoods, Park Slope, I think Cobble Hill, Red Hook, maybe one more, Borum Hill perhaps, and some up to 96% of the cars were what they called stored, which basically meant they were not used for commuting trips. They were used to make a fairway run to Red Hook on the weekend or to go to a summer home. Um, they are rarely used. And, and like Gersh was saying, that is just a completely inequitable use of space. Like We, we shouldn't be providing. I, I can't take my sofa and just toss it out on the street because, uh, you know, I need to get it cleaned and I want to have it out there for a couple of weeks while it airs out. Like, that's private property. I don't have a right to store my private property on the street. But car owners think they do. And we need, that's part of the mentality that needs to change. So we're going to be seeing more e-bikes and e-scooters on the street as well. Do you guys think that this is a positive thing? Do you think that it's going to result in more fatalities? Or do you think that it's actually going to blow open the doors and allow people maybe who didn't want a bike before uh, the opportunity to, to join the the bike community. I, I kind of want you to go first. Well, the answer, I'm so answer is it depends. It yeah. depends on a bunch of factors. One is city bike had pedal assist electric bikes for a few months until they all broke. They were the most popular form of city bike. They were used 15 times on average a day as a, compared to about five times a day for a what they call a classic city bike. So people obviously want this type of electric assist because you can get halfway across town without sweating. It's actually a really good ride. Now, as far as e-bikes and e-scooters go, other cities have had growing pains with these, mostly because private companies like Lyft and Bird and, and Spin have just dumped the scooters in towns without any rec- regulation. Now, New York City would have regulation because there are pending council bills that would cap the speed of these things. The devil is going to be in this most important detail, which is where are these vehicles going to go? If they're in the bike lane, in protected bike lane, and you have a vehicle going 20 miles an hour, that's going to be a challenge to a cyclist who's not electrically assisted, and he's going 10 miles an hour. It's also going to be a challenge if these vehicles are in the roadway, because now they're conflicting with cars that are going 25 legally, and most likely 35 in a 25 zone. So there is the potential for a lot of conflict. I believe, and people at Bird, for example, have told me this years ago, that when we get more scooters and more e-bikes in the city, it's going to create a much bigger constituency for more protection for micromobility, which is the future of this city, because the car is anathema to urban life. Yeah, uh, I'm a big fan of all this stuff. I have uh, an electric assist bicycle, and I will say that it has uh, expanded my range for those times when I don't feel like huffing it on my bike up a big hill over the bridge or whatever it is. And so I think that speaks to the idea that e-bikes and even e-scooters can expand the constituency for cycling. So uh, elderly people who do not cycle in significant numbers right now because of the state of our streets, um, people with disabilities uh, or other mobility issues, that can really expand that constituency. And you've seen that happen. The other thing is Gersh is talking about the actual movement of these things. I would also say that this will force a conversation about parking because it all comes back to parking. And in the space of one car or truck, you could have 15, 20, 40 uh, scooters in one spot. So I think I'm, I'm in favor of them for lots of reasons, but probably the biggest is that it is going to force this very important question, who are the streets for? And that is fundamentally the question we're probably asking right now. 
Is it more challenging in a city like New York where we can have pretty bad winters where people like me are wusses and we don't bike <laughs> in the winter as opposed to like Copenhagen or Amsterdam where maybe it's a little bit milder but anyway they're hardier stock and they're biking year round. Hardier stock. I, yeah, <laughs> I, for yeah. sake. I, I, exactly. I, I know, don't have that and like, I know, Danish blood in me. You know? <laughs> I, you know, there's nothing in the Danes' DNA or the Dutch. There, there's nothing in their DNA that says they're hardier than us. And I, I always find that really funny that like Americans are like, we're so tough. Yeah, USA, USA. But I'm tough. Oh, Gosh, Eight I can't. months out of the right. year, and then I hibernate. Right, and look, <laughs> not everybody is going to cycle in the worst of conditions in blizzards or in pouring rain. But if you make the streets safer, you know, I don't mind getting wet every now and then, especially if I'm coming home from work, right, because there's a shower and a towel at the end of the day. Um, but what I do mind is sharing streets with cars because the 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 consequences of hitting a pothole that you can't see because of a puddle become that much greater. Um, so it, it really comes down to infrastructure. 80% uh, of uh, Copenhageners uh, cycle through the winter, and their winters are nothing to sneeze at. They're pretty, pretty harsh. Um, so I really think it just comes down again to limiting cars, building good infrastructure and just making people feel comfortable. Look, we walk in, in the winter and, you know, there are more days where you probably feel inclined to stay inside and have a cup of coffee or something. But New Yorkers figure it out. And I think we would figure it out, too. Sure. I've made it a habit to cycle 12 months of the year. I just do it. Now, if it's snowing, I don't because I'm afraid right. of slipping and falling and getting run over by a car. But but the cold is not the issue. There's the only problem with bad weather is bad clothing. So, you know, skiers will always tell you that. Right. People go skiing, it's their vacation. It's zero degrees on a mountain, too. I also think we just need to look at cars as the alternative transportation. So in those extreme times when you need to carry something really heavy or the weather is just absolutely horrendous and you've got four kids and you need to bring them somewhere, then yes, you maybe summon a SUV to come pick you up or you take the car that you rarely use. But um, I, I think we can, we can shift. Uh, we're already a majority walking city, so like it wouldn't be that much of a stretch to say would be, if not a majority cycling city, then like a significant number of people cycling. Sure. Here. So yeah. we're looking at cars as a piece of this puzzle, not privileging them over all forms of transportation. Well, well, the idea is private car ownership is a real problem yes. because it encourages people to take trips they might not normally take by car. Even just like you said, the fairway run from Park Slope to Red Hook. Uh, people will do that. If you don't have your own car, you might make that trip more rarely. You might do a car to go or you might because people will be taking less unnecessary trips. So we have a lot of attention right now focused on this issue because of the terrible fatalities that mm -hmm. we mentioned. Um, what is something that you want both cyclists to know and people who are making decisions to know? On the cyclist end of it, I would say it's almost an unfortunate fact that like the very act of cycling in New York City can turn you into or almost require you to be an activist because those bike lanes do not just get on the street because someone says, yeah, that seems cool. They get there because people fight for them and in many cases, tragically, people die for them. No joke. Um, so if you can, find out when your community board meeting is. Find out who your city council representative is if you don't already know. Be in touch with them. Join Transportation Alternatives, the big advocacy organization here, follow Streets Blog, follow, you know, oh. follow Gersh's work because it informs you as to what the process is for getting some of this stuff done. And we need to build a much bigger constitu constituency for this stuff. To elected officials, I would say, uh, and I have said so many times, this is the future. We are going to get there one way or the other. 
New York is going to be a cycling city. Every city is going through this in the United States. The question is, how many people are going to die on our way to that? How many people are going to be injured on our way to that? And I think we can reduce that number much faster if we just accept this is what's going to happen and stop fighting it. Here's one reason why activism is so key, and you don't really even hear this very often, but precinct community councils, for example, it's a bunch of cops sitting in a room listening to the neighborhood, only the people who go to the meetings, of course, and they typically are complaining about cyclists. And then when you talk to the police commissioner, as I do, or the mayor, as I do, and he says, well, all I ever hear from my constituents is how f afraid they are of e-bikes or how afraid they are of cyclists. Well, it is true. That's probably the only people they're hearing from because someone like Doug is, well, Doug would, but, but other people... A, a regular cyclist who's not an activist wouldn't go up to the mayor and say, hey, you know, Mr. Mayor, I'm really afraid of these cars. And we do every day. Right, right. Um, so the message to the to the cyclist is don't take anything for granted because the government is not listening to you because sure. they are a very minor part of, uh, admittedly, a minor part of the transportation network in the city. I'm but afraid we of grow it. cars and bike lanes. Right. Well, that's a huge thing. You yeah. should say that all the time. Right. Now, to the elected officials, I would just say you're simply not doing enough. The culture in this city needs to change to the point where a city worker whether it's with the DOT, the NYPD, or any agency, simply will not park illegally. Just even that lowest of low-hanging fruit, zero tolerance to city officials using their city-issued car illegally should be literally zero tolerance. But it isn't. We see it every day in every bike lane, cop cars, DOT cars parked in the bike lane. If we could start there, that would be the nice low-hanging fruit to make it very easy to make the bike lanes a lot safer. All right, Gersh, Doug, thank you so much for joining me today. This is great. Thanks. Anytime. And that's the show for today. If you liked what you heard, the best way to show it is to yield. You could also review 112BK on iTunes, and please subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcasts. See you next time. 112BK is hosted by me, Mackenzie Fagan. It is series produced by Ross Tuttle, also produced by Fred Brown, Shereen Bargi, Isabel Alcantara, Naeem Van, and Emily Bogosian. It is recorded in studio by Clinton Filson Jr., Eric Hogseg, and Antonio M. Rosario. It is post-produced by Alexander Pointzolo, edited by Mira Al-Rahim, and executive produced by Jonathan Leaf, Sasha Mathias, and Aziz Aisham. 